Hey, are you looking to evolve to a higher level of existence? To practically harness spirituality and personal growth in a crazy, busy, imperfect world? Then you've come to the right place. My name is Prash and this is Urban Spirituality, the show which fuses ancient wisdom with contemporary spiritual practices to deliver value-adding tools, traits, and insights to help you live your fullest potential. We always keep it real, featuring authentic, unfiltered dialogue with guests from diverse backgrounds to inspire, entertain, and enlighten all who listen. So get ready for your dose of urban spirituality. Be present and let's dive in. Ladies and gentlemen, namaste and welcome to another episode of Urban Spirituality. I'm your host, Prash K. And today I have the distinct honor of introducing you to a global icon who you might not have heard of. Her name is Sri Jaya Rao. Jaya is the founder of Vedanta Vision, who is an ex-microbiologist and corporate executive turned published author, award-winning international speaker and spiritual mentor to thousands, transforming people's thinking and attitudes to inner wisdom globally. As the founder of the renowned Global Vedanta Vision organization, she's devoted over 30 years to educating international audiences in Vedanta, the oldest science of management and personal fulfillment in the world, which has been empowering people for thousands of years, from ancient Indian ashrams to universities the world over, and nowadays the skyscrapers of Wall Street and the Houses of Parliament. Jaya has been conferred with awards globally, including the Harit Rushdie Award, previously awarded to the Dalai Lama and other luminaries, and she addresses and trains elite groups of executives, educators, and influencers at top institutions, tapping into the intangible wealth of ancient India and projecting it to the world to enhance brand equity of the nation. She incorporates a unique blend of scholarly knowledge with real-world pragmatism. She's a skillful orator who never minces her words as she challenges people to look beyond the mundane and secular and reach for the permanent and more meaningful aspects of life. I guarantee you that this episode is going to challenge you, inform you, and enlighten you. So please join me in welcoming the Honorable Sri Jaya Rao. Jaya Rao. Thank you. We're really, really grateful to have you, Jaya Ji, on the show. Um, I don't think we've ever had the opportunity to have somebody who represents such a magnificent, and I would argue the oldest tradition on the planet, with such knowledge to be with us on the show. We're really excited to tap into some of the wisdom that you've accrued over the many years of your study and the way you've managed to synthesize it from a corporate career into the life that you now lead. So firstly, welcome and tell us how are the monsoons in India treating you at the moment? Thank you. Uh, well, where I am in Mumbai, uh, the monsoon is very, very mild at this moment. But unfortunately, as you probably know, Kerala is getting the brunt of the monsoon right now. It um, is, and it seems a very difficult time at the moment in Kerala. I'm seeing it. Yes. Uh, but I'm very excited to uh, have uh, access to wonderful people across the world, young people who are questioning who are looking for answers and who are trying to find uh, solutions to issues and problems of modern day living. Well, that's definitely a theme that resonates with us here. Urban spirituality is all about sharing those classic insights from texts, literature and common wisdom across the planet in a way that's usable and practical for the majority of us who are in a corporate or a professional trade of some sort where we do find that we're time poor and information hungry and in fact i would say wisdom hungry information everybody has access to i think that's a fair thing in fact we're probably oversaturated with information and it's no surprise that the recent statistics show that the average person living in an industrialized nation looks at their smartphone 
on an average of up to five hours a day. So there's no shortage of information. <laughs> but I think wisdom is a commodity that is in short supply, JR. And um, I think that's why we're very grateful to have people like yourselves with us on the show where you can share insights. I am curious, though. I know that you're based in India, but I understand you spend a lot of your current life traveling. That's true. Uh, I uh, travel to the United States uh, one month of the year. I am in UK about three weeks of a, in a year. And uh, wherever people invite me, so the rest of maybe a month or so, outside India. But I also spend the majority of my time in India, traveling within India. Um, and primarily or only to get across the message of Vedanta, the technique of living to as many people as possible across the globe. Well, let's start there. The word Vedanta, for many of our audience listening in here and viewers at home on our Facebook Lives, that could be a word that not everybody will understand. And I know those that may have heard of the word Vedanta may associate it perhaps incorrectly with Hinduism or with a particular uh, religion or specific tradition. Could you elaborate a little bit and demystify and uh, clarify the meaning of Vedanta for us, please? Yes, Vedanta uh, is an amalgam of two words, Veda and Anta. So the source of this knowledge is the Vedas and it appeared in the last portion of each of the four Vedas. So it was called the Anta end of the Vedas, end portion of the Vedas. Uh, but over time, uh, and the content of this knowledge was self-discovery, knowledge of yourself. Uh, it is a science which is a collection of laws, principles that govern the inner functioning, the inner world, as we call it. And uh, unless we know ourselves, we cannot form a proper relationship with the world. And that is what's going wrong in the modern world because we have a lot in the world outside to make right. us happy, to make our lives comfortable. But because of lack of knowledge of what's happening inside us, it's like you have the best of food in front of you, but if you have indigestion, you will not be able to enjoy that food. So Vedanta, in short, gives you the appetite for life so that even at 80, a person may be full of life, enthusiastic, excited, instead of what's happening today at 20, people are depressed. Let me ask you on that point. Depression is definitely listed now as probably the biggest threat, mental disease. Let's actually genericize just a moment. Uh, depression, uh, which forms a part of mental disorders, we can say, psychological disorders, are the number one epidemic facing the Western world, period. There is nothing greater, no threat more severe that lies on the horizon than that. Yet we are filled with gadgets and facilities more so than any other time in recent centuries why then the dichotomy that we have so much and yet we feel so empty and so unhappy because the sense of emptiness or the sense of happiness has nothing to do with what you have outside it has something to do with a mindset with an attitude and with your uh, with the way you look at things and that is what vedanta deals with it deals with attitudes, it deals with mindsets, it deals with how do you view your life vis-a-vis -vis the world. So the primary reason for depression, according to Vedanta, is exceeding obsession with self. So when you think of yourself all the time, and all that matters to you is selfish interests, self-centered interests and when that uh, increases beyond a point it leads to depression so you have too many desires and all of which or most of which are unfulfilled you get into depression whereas and this is what i tell people before that happens 
if you change your mindset from grabbing from a sense of entitlement to sharing, giving to a sense of duty and obligation, then you will take care of this epidemic, as you call it, that has overcome the, the world today. That's, Unfortunately, yeah. modern gadgets and modern life, modern technology um, caters to selfishness and promotes selfishness. That's a cruel irony, uh, Jaya, because every major media outlet and gadget producer tries to sell their products or services as if they're a solution to a problem that we have. They try and tell us that their product or their service or listening to this or reading that or watching this TV show or any of these innumerable offers on the table at sometimes next to nothing, you know, cost-wise, they always are sold to us as things that will give us lasting happiness or uh, some kind of fulfillment. And yet, obviously, the truth is perhaps somewhat divorced from what we're seeing. Absolutely. How are we to recognize or see through that which might be beneficial for us without discarding it? That is to say, we don't want to whitewash technology or gadgets and just throw them out. Is there a balance point that can help us to ascertain how we can use that stuff for our good and find that inner fulfillment that you're alluding to? Oh, yes. See, gadgets, technology are actually neutral. It depends on you, how you use it. Right. You could use it for your destruction. You can use it for your evolution. And that is the choice that is available to every human being. And in order to make that choice, and which brings me to the essence of um, why people are unhappy in life, is because whoever created the world or whoever designed the world seems to have designed it to kind of mislead us because anything that gives us pleasure in the immediate present invariably gives us sorrow in the long term. And that which is uh, painful in the beginning gives us everlasting happiness. So the moment you understand this, the moment and you deal with something that is giving you instant pleasure, you are, you can access it, you can enjoy it but you don't depend on it because you know that that which gives you instant pleasure invariably is going to get, lead to a different situation in future. So that is the fundamental mm. truth that we need to understand. And then you deal, the second thing is dependence. Gadgets are all very well provided you are not dependent on them. For instance, once I forgot my cell phone behind and went to Colombo, Sri Lanka for five days. And I can tell you those five days were the best period of my life because I had no encroachments on my mind and my time. So you have to you use them, but you should not be dependent on them. Okay, now from technology, and becoming detached. I'd like to know a little bit about how you developed healthy detachment because word has it on the street that you are not too different to many aspiring young professionals out there wanting to have a great career, a great education, and you had all of this. I'd love to hear a little bit about your past and what has led you on that journey to make such a magnificent and unusual change to the life that you now lead, please. Yes, uh, I was fortunate to have been introduced to Vedanta when I was very young. Within my family, my grandparents were uh, deeply interested in the subject. And um, I had the opportunity of listening to um, contemporary speakers at that time on Vedanta on the Bhagavad Gita and uh, something about what they said inspired me. I didn't understand because I was too young. I didn't understand much of what they were saying. 
but uh, the impact that it had on me, for instance, the first time I heard Swami Chinmananda was when I was perhaps seven years old. Uh, and I remember distinctly the impact that it had on me. So uh, that was one. The other was that uh, I lived abroad. I lived outside India uh, when I was very young because my father uh, traveled internationally. And uh, we lived a good life. And every time we came back to Mumbai, uh, just outside the airport, there were slums. And I would see these little kids playing on the streets. And it did something to me. And I felt guilty uh, thinking that perhaps every extra that I have enjoyed um, perhaps took away the basics from some of these kids. And so I developed this very strong urge to give back, to serve, to help um, humanity, the, the underprivileged. And so these two came together into what I've been doing, particularly the last 10 years, uh, taking this knowledge across to people so that we create more service-minded people um, and also carrying this knowledge to the underprivileged kids because the children in India, even in a city like Mumbai, um, have access to basic education. By that, I mean they are barely literate. But beyond that, they have no guidance. They have nothing to uh, stand by. And uh, with 50% of India's population uh, being under age 25, that is a huge um, mass of energy which needs to be directed properly. If right. not, it will be a horrible um, negative. And so this is where we're focusing our energies on. So if I'm not mistaken at the time, you were presumably on a path that had a career. I mean, I understand that you had studied and then went into a profession early on in microbiology, for example. Yes. And then you went into the corporate arena. During those times, JR, did you encounter something that caused a... a, a trigger a, a an aha moment for you that spurred you in a different direction whilst in that corporate career yes absolutely i'm glad you asked me this question not many people ask and i don't get an opportunity to share this idea but uh, when i was i think 21 or 22 um i was um, exposed to swami ramatirtha's books and uh, there was a sentence I read from one of his lectures that were delivered in America in 1902. And that sentence was, if you're not happy as you are, where you are, you will never be happy. And right that moment, I was planning to change something outside of me. And so I thought, either Swami Ramatita is right or I'm right. And however arrogant I may have been in youth, I couldn't bring myself to believe that I was right. So I said, let's dump everything I've been planning. Let's go with what Swami Ramatita is saying. And I did not change my externals. I looked at how I could be happy as I was where I was. And it worked. And when that worked, that was that wow moment for me. And... Um, I said, if one idea can work so magnificently, what will the whole knowledge not achieve? And that moment, I decided to, that my life was going to take a different turn altogether. And I took quick decisions with my job and decided to do this. I have not looked back since then. You mean you effectively walked away from a, arguably a very successful corporate career and turned your back on it completely yes and everyone around me thought I was insane incredible because uh, is isn't there um, you've got to you've got to share one with us here aren't there references in every ancient scripture that refer to how the wise people are regarded as foolish uh, and and uh, and short on intellect, and 
they're judged wrongly. Doesn't the Bhagavad Gita say something about you know the uh, you know what is night for the for what is night for the wise person is day for the material person and, and vice versa. There's got to be a verse that yes. speaks to this, but you must have been regarded as a mad person by everybody. And they're probably pointing you with one finger and not realizing there's three fingers pointing back right at them, that the real fool is, is actually the person saying it. Oh, well, I don't know, but um, it was the turning point in my life. And uh, because I benefited so much from it, uh, I developed that motivation and conviction that I should share this with others and also to build brand India. Because at that time, and even now maybe, um, India is still looked upon with certain, uh, what do I call it? Uh, condescension. A condescending yes. view. Yeah? Right. Um, and we ourselves don't have the confidence. When we go out outside India, we go with a, with a kind of inferiority complex because we don't have we don't know what's best in us. Completely. I, yes, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, I've got to interject because we, we're, we're doing this interview now. It only recently was, of course, India's Independence Day. And I, I, I famously shared a quote in social media channels saying that how wonderful that India, India celebrates its Independence Day and how unfortunate that the majority of its population are still enslaved by their own mindset. Absolutely. And We're a slave to hundreds of years of foreign rule and dissemination, disinformation, and all kinds of deliberate efforts to undermine a culture and a civilization that dates back at least 8,000 years. And that's just in written form, what to speak of verbal traditions that those literatures speak about, which date back plenty of ages and eons beyond that time, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, but the very thought, the very fact that people are trying to undermine us means deep down they know what we're worth. And deep down they feel insecure that we might come into our own someday. And that moment is happening. It's going to happen very soon. That's powerful. And I think it's no coincidence that yoga is being seen for what it is. And gradually the misunderstanding of yoga is beginning to fade that yoga is a discipline that originally started as something that hippies and middle-aged women do in leotards in gyms or something that's a fad and people are beginning to recognize the universal truth that yoga embodies and that its purpose is not just something to do with physical postures but a union of the individual with the source if, if, if I can call Absolutely. it that. Yes. But you know, the major fault for what has happened lies not with foreign invaders, but with us. We don't have that vision, the larger vision, to rise beyond personal interests and immediate gratification, to focus on the larger context. Right. And that is what some of us are trying to do. Now, if you look at even the spiritual scenario in India, you find um, yes, there are insti large institutions, there are more uh, larger than life-size gurus, but uh, with a very narrow perspective. If you take a look at the larger perspective and look at the culture itself, and that is what I'm focusing on. I'm not, we are not promoting the person, the individual, we are not promoting the institution, I am promoting the knowledge. Once you get the knowledge, it doesn't matter whether you follow me, follow the institution or not. It, it's like you, if you are a doctor, the fact that you have medical knowledge comes first. Where you learn medicine from is secondary. I love but that. But when That's... it comes to spirituality, people only say, I am so-and-so's disciple and I belong to a particular institution. But what do you know? How much have you grown? It's not discussed at all. I think that's a, that's a harsh but very relevant truth. And I would extend that to people from all traditions, the people who have battles, of course, now, as we see, between religions. And they're kind of missing the point. And I think a great analogy to what you say is in the world of technology, where 
where you have manufacturers uh, uh, like Google who produced their Android code platform, for example, and what they have is this concept of open source code. They produce something and it's open. It's open for the world. They've given the formula, they've given the tools, and it's down to anybody. They don't claim proprietorship over it, and they don't put themselves as the center of it. It's just for the world to use and harness. And I guess, if I'm not mistaken, that says the spirit of what you're trying to do, of course, here, which is to universalize and make accessible the core wisdom that is encapsulated in thousands of years of tradition and try to depersonalize proprietorship and politics from the picture. Absolutely. If you go back to the source of Vedanta, the Upanishads, the, the name of the Upanishad starts with the first word of the Upanishad. The author is not named anywhere. Often we don't know who the author of that Upanishad was, but what brilliant knowledge that has sustained through centuries. And if we go back to that spirit, and that is that goosebump moment where you understand people of such caliber did not bother to even mention their names, didn't bother to leave a legacy behind except the immortal knowledge. That's just entirely powerful. And the knowledge that you're referring to, and I want to I wanna touch on it, you're passionate about sharing this knowledge worldwide. And I know through speaking with people associated with yourself and having a chance to follow some of the great work that you're doing in the West, in the UK and the USA, I know that you're very passionate for the knowledge to go out. I want to know a little bit about this organization that you've set up for this. Tell us about Vedanta Vision. Vedanta Vision is a charitable, not-for-profit organization established in Mumbai, India. And uh, all our programs, whether we do it for uh, the affluent people or we do it for the underprivileged people, are free. We follow the tradition of uh, the great Upanishadic masters where knowledge is given for free. And our programs are therefore dependent on donations that come to this not-for-profit organization. Uh, we are trying to carry it forward, but I'm trying to de-link the knowledge from me as much as possible. So I want to start a, an online course on the Bhagavad Gita. I want to write a book on the Bhagavad Gita with um, learnings from the Bhagavad Gita from each chapter uh, so that people don't need to uh, put in much effort in trying to glean the truths out of these chapters and verses and present it in a modern context. Um, the course, certif the certifiable course on the Bhagavad Gita will be online. Um, and so a person who uh, does it with the exams and things like tests will get a certificate from us. And this idea I got from the United States where some, uh, I think it was a medical school that said that they give extra marks for someone who has done a certificate course in a particular religion. And they asked me, how come you don't have one on the Bhagavad Gita? Um, it's not there. So I, it, the idea came to me. So this is what we are focusing on. And uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll achieve what we want to achieve. Tell us about the Bhagavad Gita. For those of our listeners, some of them who may or may not be familiar with that, um, and some may attribute it to a, a, a book on Hinduism and others call it a book on philosophy and others still call it a book of poetry and psychology. Uh, but I guess the fact remains, it is one of the oldest literatures known to mankind, uh, at least five, nearly five and a half thousand years old in some form. Scholars can argue the debate and numbers on that. But tell us a little bit about what is the Bhagavad Gita? What is its essence? And what message could speak to our listeners that they could use in this Vedanta vision practical way that you're so keen for everybody to achieve? Uh, yes. Um, the Bhagavad Gita is a little bit of all that you said. It is a blend of poetry, of drama, of um, psychology. All these are in it. 
but the primary message of the bhagavad gita is tat tvam asi that means that god that divine power that you are seeking outside tvam you are you are that and that is i think one of the most important messages that every human being must get we are not all physically strong or good looking we are not all emotionally empowered equally empowered we are not all intellectually brilliant not all of us have a high iq but every single human being has equal measure of spirit of the divine in us and if we were to um find our way through the maze of our physical emotional and intellectual barriers and log into the spirit within we've got it then you achieve the impossible and even the the thought the idea is so powerful that yes i am divine and i have to find that masjid or mecca or uh jerusalem or kalash within me then the your whole perspective changes and it's not only about the absolute you start looking within and say yes let me tap into my own inner resource maybe i have the ability to achieve what i want to achieve and if every human being is instilled with this confidence all of us will uh, may not achieve self realization or enlightenment but at least all of us will come to some kind of sanity in the world i'd like to put a question to you let's yeah. say that i i i'm a listener and i really resonate with the essence of what you're saying that we are all divine that we are manifestations of that original one divine reality however and whatever we call it the universe god krishna ram shiva jesus uh, whatever name we attribute to it ultimately we're a part of that divinity let's say that i like the idea of that but i have i don't know two children a mortgage i have to compete with people around me just to maintain my reputation and my face i've got a couple of kids to put through university i've got poor health physically suffering and i've got all these other distractions diversions and diseases fallen upon me and i'm a victim of the corporate rat race how in all of that can i somehow still grab that rope of inspiration and hope that you're sharing and and hope to climb up it whilst contending with all that life is throwing at me ah yes what one see everyone in the world has problems everyone has issues everyone has mortgages or at least in the western world what one needs to do is set aside all of this and focus on something beyond myself so identify with a cause beyond yourself identify uh, look at what you have rather than what you don't have feel blessed wake up in the morning thinking of five things that i have that i have that i need to be grateful for and work hard work enthusiastically work excitedly for something somebody beyond myself and everything else will fall in place believe me i've experienced that when i took to vedanta it's not as if everything was hunky dory with me it's not as if i didn't have problems or it's not as if anybody Uh, is free from problems before they take to spirituality we all have our issues but or you have to have the ability to set it aside consider yourself blessed yes i have problems but i have uh, blessings which are more than what other people have and so let me focus on something more productive more positive in life and before you know it your life changes because you're looking your attitude has changed So you talk about attitude and I hear you talk about I guess 
purpose is what you're talking about. Finding a purpose yes. that is a cause. Um, and let's clarify that for a minute. When, you, when you're talking about that, you mean to say that we need to perhaps do some inner homework uh, that we can't easily do by asking a whole bunch of people going and doing a survey, but it's actually some inner homework. It's some hard questioning within ourselves to find out what it is that we really stand for, what it is that we truly exist for. Is that what you're saying that we need to do a little bit of in order to find our true purpose? Yeah, well, it's not very complicated. It could be uh, in, a, in my job, let's say I'm a salesman, right? right. In, when I go out and talk to people, I look at things from the buyer's perspective, from the customer's perspective, and not from the perspective that, oh, I need I want to sell, sell. yeah. Yeah, plain and simple. That shift in attitude will leave me with happy customers. And these happy customers will endorse me. And I don't need to compete with other people who are selfish. <laughs> you know, in the domain of service, in the domain of unselfishness, there is no competition. In the selfish world, there is competition. So you're free from competition. You enjoy what you're doing. You take a look at a person who just thinks of giving. He's a happy person. As long as you're looking at what will I gain, you will always be unhappy. So you are happy, then you start getting creative. You start thinking of ways and means of getting across to people, of making them happy with your product, of improving your product. It, your, the, whole, the whole scenario changes. I don't know uh, how to explain it. Uh, I don't know how to um, get it across. It's a service. It's, 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 I guess it's a mindset shift from changing our formula, our inner operating system from how can the world serve me? How can people and things serve me to how can I serve the world? Exactly. From profiteering to offering. I love that. From profiteering to offering. And the irony is that so many corporate institutions who are parading as those who are trying to offer something are actually looking at profiteering. They're actually looking at the bottom line. They want to survive. They have their shareholders, they have their board and they've got to make sure that they're bringing in the bottom line and really they're not actually looking at how they can offer something to people, how they can serve. And of course that's then disseminated through the cultural chain within an organization so that the entire employee hierarchy is then programmed and influenced to become the same way. Yes. You know, I'll give you an example from the real world. Azim Premji of Wipro, you've heard of him? Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> one of the At top point, tech, for tech firms in the world right now. Yes. When the stock market went through the roof, someone went and asked him, have you seen what your stock has done in the stock market? It's gone through the roof. This is its valuation. He said, really? I don't see what it's, what it's worth. I just look at my work. And as long as I'm delivering value, I know I'll survive. That is the confidence that you get when you are focused on adding value to people. I love that. Adding value seems to be such a powerful theme for all of us to embrace and something that we can all gain from and something that we need to start embracing and, and adopting in our own lives. Yes. Tell me how currently through Vedanta Vision then you're seeing that happen and, and delivering that in your own way. You've obviously mentioned the online courses, which are based on some magnificent, powerful teachings that you want to demystify and bring into a more relevant and usable perspective for a modern audience. What other ways are you doing that? I know you travel a lot um, and speak, for example. That's true. Uh, see, when you speak, um, the, the contact, with the real life, live contact with a person is something that is, um, that is fantastic. You cannot uh, replace that with online stuff, uh, long distance stuff. 
and that is why i go myself and i'm going to do it till as long as i can because it's the the personal contact that gets things across you know uh, much better than words uh, the other uh, thing that we're focusing on is relationships if you take a look at the world today relationships between people between entities is breaking down fast uh, divorce rates are going up conflict in business is increasing and this is, all this is again because of what we call as attachment and one of the favorite themes of vedanta is to rise above attachment and get detached these concepts are horribly misunderstood even by indians so people come to me and say oh but how can i detach they think detachment is physical they think they need to get physically distanced from yeah. their loved ones which is not true uh, what detachment is is what you call as love minus selfishness in every relationship we have expectations we make demands on the other person and when these unrealistic expectations and demands are not met with there's frustration bitterness and conflict whereas if you say i love you the way you are i don't expect anything from you i don't make any demands on you and you feel then comfortable and you then return the courtesy and you say you love me too and that's a wonderful relationship to have but now every relationship is based on the foundation of expectation and these expectations are sky high parents expect kids to be super kids they want them to be good in academics sport uh, every area and i often ask them i said how can that be how can you expect that after all your kid has your genes <laughs> <laughs> what can they say to that right <laughs> i hope the penny drops then <laughs> right and the penny has to drop i mean if we don't then we're heading into and fulfilling the frightening statistics that we talked about earlier in this interview that psychological disorders disorders of the mind are the number one cause of illness in the industrialized nations of the world and it's only getting worse so i think pennies do have to drop so i take that on board um, i i, I want to just ask you for a moment there you you gave a nice little formula you said love minus selfishness equals detachment equals detachment so could you give us one or two tips how we could cultivate detachment if detachment doesn't mean necessarily distancing distancing ourselves or renouncing physical objects or persons how can we cultivate detachment in our material urban lives that we most of us live yes um you see when you expect things from other people why does one expect things from other people because you are not complete with yourself you are not whole within yourself you're not happy within i mean uh, independent uh, so it's like this a creeper necessarily needs to depend on a tree because it's incapable of living by itself similarly we as human beings because of this inner emptiness we feel incomplete and therefore we are not capable of being by ourselves therefore we need to reach out to people hang on to people lean on people and only then do we feel complete so when the other person when you're hanging on to another person the other person feels uncomfortable and tends to say get off my back which is what is happening. whereas if you're not leaning on the other person you're quite happy to be by yourself i often say when the other person is around you're very happy to be with the person when the person is not there you should be happy with yourself that's not what's happening now what's happening is when the person is there there's conflict when the person is not there you miss you miss the person so it's a lose lose situation right now um and it will move to a win win situation 
if we just implement the principles of Vedanta. Simple um, principles that can be incorporated into our lives very, very easily. The first step is just make an assessment of the other person. Let's say I make an assessment of uh, my partner and say he is a wonderful person, but he is disorganized. So I'm, when I deal with him, I must expect him to be disorganized. If he is perfectly organized, it should take me by surprise. Right? Or another person says, my wife is a wonderful person, except that she gets into moods. <laughs> so when she gets into... <laughs> except so when, right. when she's in a bad mood, I say, oh, she's my wife, all right. <laughs> and I deal with it. But when you don't accept reality and you expect the impossible to happen, it's like expecting uh, an ill-tempered person not to be ill-tempered. That's the starting point of conflict. You, ex you understand children for what they are. You cannot expect a child to have your maturity. A child will be a child. I like that. I like that a lot. And I think, I guess, what you're using, you're using your analogy of formulas, I guess what we're saying is there's an equation here. On the one side, there's acceptance. And on the other side, there's expectancy. And we've got ourselves overweighted on the expectancy side of that Expectation. Equation. Yes. The moment we start balancing out and we moderate our expectations and increase our acceptance of the situation, which of course doesn't mean complacency, that they're, they're two different words, but once we understand and accept the situation, and that's healthy acceptance, I guess, what you're saying is that we're less likely to be adversely affected by expectations that are unfulfilled, which is just a natural part of life, and you're less likely to be agitated when that happens, and you're more likely to ride above that. Is that, is that really the thrust Absolutely. of what you're... Yes. Because the truth is, you can't change anyone in the world except yourself. Okay, I mean, that's, I, I, cannot, debate, I cannot debate that, but I do have a challenge for you. I okay. have this three-letter three letter friend that causes me a lot of problems. And if I'm not mistaken, this three-letter friend seems to like the company of seven and a half billion other people on this planet. His name is, or her name is Ego. What and how should we deal with the ego? I've heard some monks say that you should kill it. I've heard other people say it's just a figment of our imagination. And then I've heard others say that you should just ignore it uh, or, or embrace it and everything else in between. What's the, uh, what's the answer here, Jaya? Yeah, the first is to understand what ego is, right? How does ego come about? It's like on the vast surface of the ocean, this huge body of water, a, a little bit of that water, thin film of the water, encompasses a little bit of air and forms a bubble, right? The bubble then asserts its identity as separate from the totality and says, I am a separate entity, so I have to grow bigger, I have to swallow up other bubbles, I have to compete with other bubbles and become bigger and bigger. And eventually what happens? The bubble bursts. When the bubble bursts, what's happened? Nothing has happened. Because what is the bubble? The bubble is nothing but the same water of the ocean in a different Nama Rupa is what Vedanta says. Different name, different form, different configuration. And therefore it appears to be separate. Even but when it's actually it asserts not. It's, it's actually not. It never is. Even when it asserts its individuality, it is still part of the ocean. So what is the bubble? The bubble is nothing but a part of the ocean, an insignificant part of the ocean, which has encapsulated a little bit of air. That's all we are. That is what the ego is. Just air. We are all hot air balloons. And <laughs> the day you deflate yourself, you understand, I am the ocean. I haven't become nothing. I've just regained my original identity. And that is a wonderful understanding. 
How so do we get there? How do we get, how do we cultivate that healthy relationship with our ego? In that exactly. Do, the first is to understand how it operates. Ego operates as, I am supreme. I am the best. Second, that I only exist. That's how we all live. Uh, when you drive, you drive as if you were the only person that's important in, on the streets and no one else is, so on and so forth. And the third, very important, I am the doer. So you've got to snap that and say, oh, I'm not the only person who exists. There are billions of people who exist. There are trillions of creatures who exist. I'm just one five foot nothing individual on one planet of one solar system of one, you know, that mighty universe. So I'm nothing, basically. Second, that I am supreme. Where does that come from? If you take it my ability, I have nothing. I'm, I'm not capable of doing very much by myself. So how do I get that I am supreme? It's, it's madness to think you're, you are supreme. Third, I am the doer. No, whatever I've done is a little bit compared to the vast source of knowledge that has come to me as a result of which I've put in my little two bits and produced a little something. So you've got to smash the ego as it comes, as it raises its head, give it a little nudge of understanding, wisdom, not kill it. Not kill it. I think that's a misunderstanding. People kind of demonize anything to do with um, our ego and kind of make it sound like it's a crime. And then you end up feeling guilty and that unhealthy emotions seem to arise. And I think what you're saying is you don't need to do that. No, you just, you just need to understand it's a childish notion you've cultivated. It's immaturity on your You heart. just need to you make just... mature that understanding of those three fantastic insights should help us to I think it's their meditations. Take those three insights, meditate upon that fact. You're not trying to make yourself feel insignificant and useless. You're just simply recontextualizing your place on this planet and in yes. this universe, your, your space. And that hopefully should cultivate a sense of humility. And a sense of humility is always a powerful ally on our road to success, real success, that is. Absolutely. And then you take the other end of the spectrum, the greatest people on earth, the people who really contributed a great deal to the world have been absolutely humble people. Whether it's an Einstein or a sage meditating in the Himalayas or an artist or a musician, their um, USP is humility. Okay, now I'm hungry and I realize that we're running out of time and you've talked about USPs. Let's talk about three USPs from the Vedanta and the Bhagavad Gita that could be three powerful take-home messages or wisdom that our listeners can start implementing straight away. One is shift from entitlement to contribute to. Never have a sense of entitlement. Always have a feeling of obligation that I owe this to the world and to my family and to everybody else. The second is expand your circle of love. We um, confine ourselves to people who think like us, who are like us, who have the same color of skin as me, that any fool can do. But to rise above it and identify with people who are different from me and still love them is the, the, uh, the outstanding feature of a human being. And we must cultivate that. Today, there's so much conflict and bloodshed because we can't rise above these differences. And the third is gain knowledge. Knowledge of what? Not the Gita and Upanishads, but just knowledge of what is permanent and what is impermanent. We don't know what is permanent, but we must understand that the world and all that it offers is passing, ephemeral, impermanent. And therefore, like the fifth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita says, the wise does not revel in these childish things. So when you understand it's impermanent, you may engage with them, 
You may enjoy them, you may interact with them, but never sell your soul to passing ephemeral things. I'm speechless. I don't know what to say to that, but those are such powerful words that I think every person, every listener could take on board and apply those powerful messages in their daily lives, irrespective of what race, creed, color, or religion, or no religion or affiliation somebody is. I think those are universal principles. And I guess that is the point of the Vedantas, uh, Jaya. And I know, you know, having had the great pleasure of gaining some glimpse into some of your written works, I know that that's the essence of the Vedantas that you try to share with the world, that it is a universal concept, a manual, an instruction manual for inner fulfillment. Absolutely. Well put. Thank you. So talking of inner fulfillment, where can we find you next? How can our listeners connect with you and learn more from you? Yes, we are on YouTube. A lot of, we have a lot of videos on YouTube. They are not complete, but they're clips. But that's enough for people to start with. I've had the pleasure myself, Vedanta Vision and JRL. Yes, we are also on Facebook. We have a Facebook page called Vedanta Vision, um, where we post valuable quotes on Vedanta every day. Uh, as I said, the accent is on the knowledge, not on me. So uh, you get direct access to the knowledge. Uh, we have a website called VedantaVision.org where uh, people who want the whole of it, we have the entire Bhagavad Gita, which is 125 hours of the, the original Sanskrit verse, the English translation and the explanation in English by me in audio and video format, which people can access through our website. They can order it and we can deliver it anywhere in the world. Uh, we have our books, we have other uh, topics, and we run corporate courses. Uh, again, anyone anywhere in the world can invite me. I'll be happy to go over and speak to their executives and help them tap into their potential with it. Jerji, thank you for sharing this wisdom. It's been an absolute honor to have you with us and receive the distinctions that are not normally spoken about on a daily basis and that are important for us and that easily get overlooked in our daily living. And I know that you're known for not dicing your words. I know that you're well respected in corporations, uh, in, in the boardroom, as well as private community circles as somebody who doesn't mess around with the truth, but loves to deliver it as is, undiluted and unselfishly, which I think helps to have you stand out as somebody who is truly a compassionate and knowledgeable person. And to find compassion and knowledge in, in one person is such a rare thing these days and they're in, in a world of motivational speakers inspirational uh, thought leaders to find somebody with this level of depth and compassion and who is unselfishly and and ceaselessly traveling at great personal sacrifice at times speaking to what is it now hundreds of thousands of people and that's just in the past few years let alone the journey you've been on i think it's a hugely precious thing so I offer my great respects to all the work that you're doing. And I believe that you are truly epitomizing and living the persona of the title of your excellent book on Amazon, The Profile of a Perfect Person. I hope you continue to do what you're doing. I hope that our listeners can connect with you and play a part in their own unique way in improving the their position and the standard of life on this planet. Thank you so much. Namaste. Thank you. Namaste. May I end with just one sentence to all your listeners. Seek perfection and the whole world will be at your feet. Hey folks, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And as with all our episodes, found something to inform, inspire and empower you in your spiritual and personal journeys in life. 
As always, if you enjoyed it, feel free to leave a little love through your ratings and comments, share it with those who you care about, and take your personal and spiritual evolution to the next level by joining us on one of our events, workshops, or retreats. Find out more about us at mantratherapy.co.uk. I'm your host, Prash K. This is Urban Spirituality, and we will catch you on the next episode.